Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to Hour 2 of this morning's Mornings with Carmen on this 7th of the 7th month, 7-7 mm-hmm. seven, seven today. Um, all right, I want to talk uh, here at the outset about the value of a human life. What is the value of a human life? What is the value of every human life or any human life? Is one human life of greater value than another? How would you decide that? When we think about value, um, we tend to think in material terms. So let me ask the question that was asked um, on CNN, which, you know, is not normally a place that you might think, oh, hey, there is a worldview conversation to be had and a great opportunity for Christians to get into the conversations uh, of the day. The question raised was, is this human life of more or less value than a piece of bread. Hmm. His name is Zalme Nazi. Zalme Nazi. If you live in Iowa, you may know him. Uh, Zalme Nazi uh, lives in Iowa now. He was born in Afghanistan. When he was nine years old, he saved his family from Taliban threats to burn down their house by uh, giving the Taliban what they demanded, a piece of bread. He describes that piece of bread as no bigger than uh, a cell phone. And because he gave them what they demanded, the Taliban did not burn down his house nor slaughter his family. He was nine years old. Fast forward to 2007 when the United States military needs interpreters uh, and Naze, uh, Zalme Naze, stepped forward to serve in that capacity, in that role, as a translator and an interpreter for U.S. forces in Afghanistan for a number of years. He did so faithfully. Uh, then, uh, under threat of his life by the Taliban, he moved here to the United States under the claim of political asylum. The United States is now threatening to deport him for what it views as, quote, material support of a terrorist organization. That material support? The piece of bread when he was nine years old. Now, clearly there's a responsibility uh, here as Americans and for the nation. And, you know, clearly we do not want to deport this person for this. But I think as Christians, there's a real opportunity here to talk about the value of a human life and the value of every human life and the value of a piece of bread. Now, if your mind is not yet making the connection uh, that mine is making, let me suggest to you that on the night that uh, he would be betrayed, Jesus 
broke bread. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The question before us, is your life, is any and every human life, worth more or less than a piece of bread? It ultimately depends on the piece of bread. Bill English is up next. He and I are going to talk about some business news of the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. Welcome back, sir. Hey, good to be back. How are you doing this morning? I, I am well. I am well. So um, let's talk about this massive cyber attack uh, and what we know today. Well, what we know today is that they attacked basically a platform uh, that thousands of businesses use and by extension, they were able to shut down thousands of businesses. Now, the reason that they wanted to shut them down is not because they hate the businesses. It's because the the wide-ranging shutdown of those businesses gives them leverage in negotiating. So you'll remember that when they shut down the uh, the gas pipeline uh, in the eastern part of the United States, they got, I think, $5 million out of that deal. Uh, this one, they're getting $70 million because this is more um, – there's more businesses affected and there's more economic activity that's being shut down. And so that gives them greater leverage to ask for more money. And note that they're asking for it in Bitcoin, right, which is a cryptocurrency where you can trade value very, very quickly and very efficiently uh, worldwide outside of all the banking systems that the, com- that the uh, countries have set up. So – that's what's happening. It wouldn't surprise me if this group, they're called R-Evil, um, R-E-V-I-L, um, wouldn't surprise me if they've already got another dozen or two dozen, maybe even more um, uh, platforms like this ready to go when they want more money. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, they, if they've already infiltrated a bunch of others and they're just waiting to pull the trigger. A lot of the businesses affected, in fact, I think overwhelmingly, the businesses affected in this particular attack are small businesses. Um, Talk with us about just how debilitating it is for a small business to, let's say, not be able to run its cash registers even for a few days. Well, we've we've seen the effect of that from COVID, right? Businesses close. You know, people think the business owners are these wealthy fat cats sitting around Uh, you know, just, you know, oppressing people. But that is not what most small businesses are. Most of them live uh, cycle to cycle, so to speak. And if if they can eke out a 5% net profit, they're doing pretty good. And so when you can't run your cash register to conduct cash level transactions, uh, what that's going to do to you is shut down your ability to sell goods because you can't accept payments. And when you can't do that, then you lose profit. And when you lose profit, that leads you to going out of business. Uh, this actually may force, not force, how do I say this? This may cause a number of small businesses to think about getting into cryptocurrency, where the cash register is basically a cell phone 
and an internet connection. The way that um, the way that business is conducted, and I mean, I suppose if you were taking like you know cold hard cash for oh. your farm co-op items, you could technically just keep a paper ledger. Um, I think you the could. challenge, right? I think the challenge comes when you're trying to process credit cards, um, and you you know, and you can't do that. Um, I mean, I, I suspect that it, it's either like hard currency, or it's as you are saying. Um, just completely cell phone driven. Uh, it's my understanding that for some of them, though, the technology related to processing the payments at all online is what was disrupted, um, it, particularly for like these farm co-ops in, uh, I think it was in Finland. Anyway, uh, small businesses. We're talking about really small businesses here. Um, let's uh, let's also talk about um, another headline that we're reading, and that, is, unless you want to focus a little bit longer on small businesses and cyber attack. No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm, All right. I'll, I'm the guest. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about um, what's going on in San Francisco. So the headline overnight, which I didn't share with you yet, <clears throat> is that there was a smash and grab by an organized group of shoplifters who looted a San Francisco Neiman Marcus. Now, uh, and they did so in broad daylight and it's captured on video. So it, it, there's every chance that because those are high dollar items that they stole from Neiman, Neiman Marcus, that this will actually rise, this will lay, raise the level of attention uh, of what is going on in San Francisco. The article that you and I um, teed up to talk about is that a Target store or Target stores are closing um, because of shoplifting. A Walgreens has already, or Walgreens has actually already closed a number of stores across the city. What is going on in San Francisco? San Francisco has made it possible for criminals to have a very low-cost way to grab inventory, if I can put it that way, and then resell it on a black market at a very high price. I saw the video of the guys running out of the Neiman Marcus with all the purses. Actually, it was kind of comical uh, to see these guys running down the street with these fancy purses. And and uh, and you're wondering, how, how are they not going to be conspicuous? But obviously, they didn't care. Uh, look, um, if well, they don't I, if care I'm because criminal, they're not being arrested and they're not being prosecuted. It's because well, they're not being prosecuted for shoplifting. Correct. And, and they're being given a business model that everybody would like to have. Look, thieves are business owners too. Thieves are businessmen and women too, right? Um, I'm tweeting that out right now. Bill, <laughs> thieves they are. are business when, owners You know, when, when you look at the drug cartels, they're, they're just a big business. And so and I, I'm not I'm not no, look, please don't email in and say that I think drug cartels are fine. I don't. I'm just talking strictly from a business model standpoint. So these guys are not going to be prosecuted because of the lax laws that they have in San Francisco. So thieves are organizing to get more product from legitimate stores like Neiman Marcus or Walgreens or Target. And then they're going to go to the black markets and sell the goods and services there. Um, so, so San Francisco has unwittingly set up incentives for people to disobey the law and then profit from disobeying the law with impunity. This is something that, uh, the rest of the, uh, uh, jurisdictions around the nation, yea, verily around the world should take note that when you give, uh, thieves, License to set, license to steal because you you tell them that you're not going to arrest them unless they shoplift over a certain amount of 
dollar value, uh, then then what you're going to do is get what they got, what they have today in San Francisco. And the fact that the folks in San Francisco can't figure out why it's going on shows you the depth of the depravity and the confusion that they are in. You know, when we, Deuteronomy is really clear about the fact that, and this is Deuteronomy 28, that when we live in sin, God sends on us a number of things. But one of those things that he sends on us is confusions. And this is clearly a confused law in a confused city council. And it's because, I think, they are not walking with God. In fact, they're probably walking in, in, uh, in uh, uh, defiance of God. All right, Bill English and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You can find Bill at BibleAndBusiness.com. He's also the author of A Christian Theology of Business Ownership. He and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Bill English. You can find him at BibleandBusiness.com. Bill, um, I am reading a report out of Iceland that describes the what they describe as wildly successful experiment of allowing people to work less than 40 hours a week with no reduction in pay. Um, apparently, they have been uh, they have been doing this at the city city and state level government employees since 2015 as an experiment, allowing them to work as few as 32 hours a week with no reduction in pay. Um, And of course, you know, there are those who would then say, translate that everywhere and say, it's time to end the 40-hour work week. Um, How did we come up with, or what's the the reasoning behind a 40-hour work week? Um, And then just let's talk about a little bit of the reality that, you know, God actually designed us for work, like work is not a part of the fall. It's actually a pre-fall part of God's design. Yeah, my understanding of the 40-hour work week is that it was a compromise uh, that grew out of the child labor laws and and other labor where um, business owners were very much oppressing uh, their workers by having them work six, seven days a week for 12 to 14 hours a day. And, uh, and if you do, if you couldn't work from like 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. six days a week, then you, then you didn't get a job at all. Um, and so, where the 40 hours actually came from specifically, I, I don't know. But it's been that way in the United States uh, for a long, long time. Uh, you you remember that the Affordable Care Act that we also know as Obamacare defined full time as 30 hours a week. So we've mm-hmm. had that ensconced in uh, federal law now for. I don't know, five, six, seven years, however long that's been. Um, You can't continue to pay more for less productivity and expect to survive as an organization. So there's the principle. When productivity goes down, compensation should go down. When productivity goes up, compensation should go up, which is why a number of businesses like to incentivize um, productivity above a certain threshold. They do this in sales. We do it in, in the healthcare organization, in, in the healthcare industry with certain uh, types of uh, service deliveries. And, and so this idea that, that we can somehow get the same productivity in less hours, I, I, to me, that's very suspect. Um, 
there is, and, and you're right, work is a gift from God. So, Yeah. Uh, I also have this little um, factoid to throw into the mix. Employees in America are spending something like 32% of their time on social media when they're supposed to be working. So people are already, I mean, I, I actually sent a, 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 a direct message on Twitter to a friend of mine at one point who had been posting uh, over a fairly long period of time during a workday. And I just direct messaged him and said, okay, I, I just have to call you out. Like you're, you are, you have now been on this platform for four hours. It's the middle of a workday. Like you're, you're actually like robbing your employer. Like I, I can't, like, what are you doing? But I don't think we hold one another accountable like that very often. We don't see work in moral terms in the church. We see work in financial terms or career terms, but we don't see it in moral terms. And we don't understand the theology behind it that you, um, that you correctly um, articulated at the beginning of this spot which is that work is a gift from God, and it gives us dignity, it gives us purpose, and it gives us a way to worship God. I think, I forget where it is in the New Testament, but Paul says, your work is a worship, it's a type of worship to God. But American Christians generally don't see it that way. Um, using your 30%, if, if that's the case, then on a 40-hour work week, we're getting 28 hours, give or take, of productivity. You go to a 30-hour work week, we go down to 21 hours. So... Uh, you know, you can't continue to pay the same for lower productivity and expect the organization to survive. It just isn't going to happen. Yeah, the empirical evidence, I think, is, you know, uh, not in. We have people texting in saying, hey, I think the push is that, you know, they're saying people are more productive in a 30-hour work week than they are in 40 hours. Um, I, I think the empirical evidence, uh, you know, isn't in on that, particularly when we talk about small businesses. I mean, because you're going to have to pay more people to cover um, the gap, like, right, there's going to be a gap created. You can't, you know, if you've got people working 30 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week, your business is open a quarter less. Like, uh, just businesses, I mean, small businesses can't live like that. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's just yeah. interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to me how focused we have become on the the gratification of the individual and lost sight of the value of our work, how valuable work is, the dignity of work. Yes, there's a necessity of rest. I mean, there's supposed to be a righteous rhythm to life. Sabbath rest was also a part of God's original plan. And, you know, and I think that's imperative as well. But the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be diligent in our work, it may take me 60 or 70 hours a week to get my work done. Um, but if it's work that I'm doing is under the Lord, then so be it. The um, And not only are we highly individualistic, but at least in America, we are highly employee-focused. And we continue to believe that the employer has uh, unlimited resources that they can uh, give up in order to help the employee. Um, just remember that you do not help the employee by injuring the employer. When you injure employers, you also injure employees. And so... You know, again, letting people uh, steal, okay, without, without, with, really with impunity, 
injures employers. When you ask people to get paid the same for less productivity, that injures the employers. And eventually, over time, if you incrementally do these kinds of things often enough, you'll find that you don't have very many employers, and then you'll wonder why people can't find jobs. Yeah, exactly. Bill, so as another, always, another bummer bill Wednesday. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> hey, to be uplifted, visit Bill yes. at BibleAndBusiness.com and check out his book, A Christian Theology of Business Ownership. It's an introduction for Christian entrepreneurs on what the Bible says about owning a business. And it's full of joy. It There's is. no bummers it involved. Is. Yeah. Bill, Thanks. as You're always, thank you right. so much. Thanks. Take care. You too. We've got to take a break for Breakpoint. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. We all recognize the need for resilience. Do you know what the factors of resilience are and how the teachings of Jesus speak to the topic of resilience? Sheridan Voicey and I are going to talk about a Jesus-shaped resilience next. Control freaks are easily frustrated. We can't take control because control is not ours to take. This is Max Locato. The Bible has a better idea. Rather than seeking control, relinquish it. Peace is within reach, not for lack of problems, but because of the presence of a sovereign Lord. Rather than rehearse the chaos of the world, rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. As the Apostle Paul did, from prison he wrote, The things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. In the innermost part of his being, Paul was a man who believed in the steady hand of a good God, protected and preserved by God's love. He lived beneath the shadow of God's wings. Do you? This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, Sheridan Voicey. You recognize him as a writer, a speaker, a BBC broadcaster on faith and spirituality. We talk from him from time to time. His latest book is Resilient, Your Invitation to a Jesus-Shaped Life. Sheridan, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Always good to talk to you. It's great to talk with you as well. All right, so this experiment that you did, reading the Sermon on the Mount every day for a month that then stretched to two months and then three, um, grew into something. So talk with us about, first of all, what was that like um, as a as a practice, um, and then what was the product of that practice? Yeah, well, great questions, and I'm hoping that the answer to the first question is that everybody who's listening to us now is going to take up the uh, the challenge of reading the Sermon on the Mount every day for a month, because uh, it's only three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
You can do it in about 15 to 20 minutes. It doesn't take long. But if you're like me, what you might find happening is that as you're reading along, there'll be one verse that particularly catches your heart and you've got to go deeper on that verse. So that's why my little experiment went to two, three months. Then I started studying it on, on um, Sunday afternoons. I'd pull out all my commentaries, uh, start writing notes and things. And a couple of years later, then it resulted in this uh, this book, Resilient, and also a, a little film series that um, up until now has actually been something you only you could only get through purchase, but we're actually making that for free. So it has been something that's really – I actually did that a few years ago. It's been a little practice that has changed me so profoundly. And so every year I will then have a period where I'll also spend a bit more time in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the manifesto for a meaningful life from Jesus. That's really what it is. Yeah, it's so good. All right, again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is your reading assignment. Um, read it every day for a month, not just, as Sheridan says, um, the the comforting bits, but all the bits, the hard bits, the challenging bits, <laughs> the chewy bits. Um, and you can go to SheridanVoicey.com backslash Resilient Series and, um, and sign up to get the free video series um, as well, or access the free video series. Um, on this conversation. So Sheridan, um, talk with us about the these four factors of resilience and then how Jesus's teaching speaks to each of those. This is so interesting. So the, the whole idea of resilience comes in the Sermon on the Mount, comes at the end of the sermon. So you remember Jesus you know, starts off with the Beatitudes and he talks about loving enemies and all sorts of other things. But then he ends on that famous story of the two builders. And the, the first builder uh, does the proper groundwork, digs beneath the soil, digs beneath the sand, hits the bedrock, builds his house up on the bedrock. The other one can't be bothered with all of that, and so he just builds his house on the sand. Jesus says when the storms hit them both, which is a key idea to, to remember, the storms of life will come to both the godly and the ungodly. But when the storms come, it's the first person whose house stands, the second person whose house collapses. And that's really another phrase for resilience. Resilience is when we are able to face the storms of life and yes, they might bend us out of shape and the, the rain might pelt our windows, but at the same time, we're able to keep on going through them. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the last couple of decades, uh, psychologists have really focused a lot on resilience as a theme, and they've kind of looked for these factors that will help us to face those trials of life. And people like Martin Seligman, who's the kind of a key leader in the positive psychology movement, has really brought them down to four factors. Positive emotions which means that we amplify things like gratitude and hope and love and we manage the, the more difficult emotions like sadness and bitterness and anger and things like that. Second is strong relationships. Resilient people have good marriages. They've got good friendships, good connections with the community. Uh, you know, they, they work well with colleagues, things like that. Third factor is accomplishment. Uh, the resilient person can look at something in their life and say, I can do that well. Even if it's not the work, maybe the work isn't going so well, maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's not a hobby, it's it's parenting. They can look at something in life and say, you know, I, I do that well. And then the fourth one, which I always find fascinating from a, a psychological perspective, is meaning. It's that psychologically strong people, people who are resilient, have a sense of meaning and purpose about their life. They find themselves in the context of something bigger than themselves. Now, here is the key thing is that all of these factors you either find Jesus address explicitly or implicitly in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But the key aspect to all of this, the key difference, is that while the positive psychology movement will say, find your power and your strength to develop all of these within, <laughs> Jesus says, actually, I can come into you and, and empower you to, to live them from within in the outside world. So that's the key thing. But I can touch, if you like, uh, on how the sermon touches on those four factors. But it's so fascinating to see that the modern psychological research really is kind of backing up what Jesus was talking about two millennia ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want to talk about um, this Jesus-shaped resilience. Um, Again, I'm talking with Sheridan Voicey. We're drawing on Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're looking then at the way um, a Jesus-shaped resilience actually lines up with what modern psychology tells us about people who are resilient, positive emotions, strong relationships, uh, a sense of accomplishment, and then this uh, conversation about a larger meaning or purpose in life. So let's um, let's unpack those, um, you know, in terms of what Jesus has to say about them in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just, let's start with the first one and then take a brief break and come back and cover the other three. Okay, right. So positive emotions. Well, things like hope you find right in the first line of the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the Beatitudes that follow, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are those who are merciful. All of those are notes of hope to people who otherwise would never have had hope back in that day. In Jesus' day, under the Romans, the poor really didn't have any sense of resilience. Uh, You were considered stricken by God or the gods if you were poor. Uh, And then Jesus comes along, opens up the doors to his kingdom, says, come on in, in my kingdom you are blessed. So it starts on a note of hope. What about sadness and how to manage that? What's the second line in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the sad because they will be comforted. So he touches on those things. He talks about bitterness, gives a whole kind of two strategies, two specific strategies on how to deal with anger and bitterness in the Sermon on the Mount. One's focused on fellow believers. The other one is focused on our neighbor. But the biggest area that he really focuses on when it comes to emotions is worry. There's a whole section where he gives two approaches to dealing with worry. The first one is very, very practical. He says, look, can you add an hour to your life by worrying? And this, of course, is what, you know, psychologists, philosophers have said in recent years. Well, actually, the majority of the things we worry about aren't going to come to pass. So actually, just it, it wastes life rather than adds to it. Well, Jesus was saying that two millennia ago. But the second one is more theological, much more important. He says, your father looks after you. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers on the field. All of those are signs of God's provision for the natural world. How much more valuable are you to him? He will provide for you. So that's just the first point. Um, he's doing it, you know, looking at these things from a, a, an entirely different perspective, but still hitting our human need for positive emotions. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Sheridan Voicey. We are talking about uh, Jesus-shaped resilience. We're really talking about a Jesus-shaped life uh, and how we live faithfully as his people in the world today amidst, you know, challenging circumstances. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Just to know, I'm trying to tell everybody all about somebody. 
Continuing our conversation with Sheridan Voicey, you can find the resources we're talking about today by visiting him online at SheridanVoicey.com. You're looking there for the Resilient series. It's a free video series posted at SheridanVoicey.com. So we're talking about this examination of the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus is offering us uh, a, a way to be people who are resilient because we are people in Christ. Um, and so let's talk about the strengthening of relationships. Yeah, this is so interesting. You may not realize it when you first read the Sermon on the Mount, but actually there's a clear structure to it. You've got this introduction where Jesus opens the door and says, come on into my kingdom. And that's the Beatitudes, uh, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc. Then the next section it's all about relationships. In fact, he deals with four key forces that destroy our relationships. The first one is anger. And then he has uh, two approaches there. He says, you know, if your fellow believer is has a problem with you, well, then kind of put your offering down, i.e. for us today in the church, stop the service, stop what you're doing, stop your worshiping and go and reconcile with them. Uh, but secondly, if you've got a problem with your neighbor, deal with them uh, quickly, deal with it quickly before they go and take you off to court. So he deals with anger, talks about the destructive nature of anger, uh, like it's just another form of murder in some kind of way. The second force is unfaithfulness. This is where Jesus talks about lust and uh, divorce and things like that. The third is false promises when you say yes, but actually really mean no when you don't keep your promises. And the fourth is retaliation. And this is where he talks about, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, and then he upends all of that and says, well, I say to you, love your enemy. And of course, this is the most profound teaching. I have come and uh, I probably have talked about this on your show before. I've, I've gone and talked to secular groups and spoken about this call of Jesus to love our enemies and how it is just so counter radical. And, and, and they get it. They see that it is so, so countercultural to everything that we are taught and everything that is in our lives and in our hearts. Of course, it doesn't mean we can do it. We need his Holy Spirit to be able to do it, but it's absolutely fascinating. So Jesus has four key areas that he looks at when it comes to the destruction of relationships so that our relationships can be strong. All right. And then um, we talk about uh, not only accomplishments, but kind of unexpected accomplishments. I like the way that you phrase that. Yeah, very much so. So this is where in the, the secular psychology world, they would say, you know, uh, you develop a skill, you set some goals, you take up a hobby, you know, you become expert at something. Well, nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus take, tell us to take up a hobby or, you know, set some career goals for ourselves or anything like that. I believe he does something even better. What's the next section of the Sermon on the Mount? He actually talks about our calling, our calling to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. Now, here's the really interesting thing about that, Carmen. Who is the audience that Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? This has baffled the scholars for a little bit because the sermon starts by saying that Jesus takes his disciples up onto the mountain and they gather around, sit down and listen to him. By the end of the sermon, you find that the whole crowds of the area have come around and listened as well because you hear them saying how amazing they are, how amazed they are at what they've just heard. Where did those crowds come from? Most likely, they're the people talked about at the end of chapter four in Matthew. And that's a motley group indeed. I mean, these are some people who were demon possessed. They had uh, suffering severe pain and chronic illnesses. Some had seizures. 
and Jesus heals them and, and, and helps them and restores them. But then that's the group, as well as the disciples, that he says, you, by following me, are going to be the salt of the earth, and you, by following me, are going to be the light of the world. My goodness. Accomplishment. I don't know about you, Carmen, but there are plenty of days that I feel very small, very inadequate, like I don't have a lot to offer to, to God or to the world. And sometimes in the eyes of the world, I don't. <laughs> and yet in the eyes of Jesus, he says, it's the little people, it's the small people, it's the insignificant ones that I actually pick up and I use to be the world changers. I think getting to the place, Sheridan, where um, you don't you don't even view any anything, uh, the smallest of of acts as insignificant um, is a part of this conversation. So if, if everything that I do, I do by Christ and for Christ, if I can recognize that picking up a piece of litter is actually, you know, reclaiming one tiny little patch of earth um, so that it would be more uh, on earth like it is in heaven, right? It's not going to be any trash on the streets of heaven. So why would mm-hmm. I, as a Christian, allow you know, if I can bend down and pick up a piece of trash and throw it away, it's like, you know, throwing Satan away. It's just even even bit by bit, little bit by bit, little bit. And that may seem completely inconsequential, but that's actually an accomplishment. Like I am, I mean, if I can think about it from a biblical worldview, I am reclaiming that one tiny little spot on the earth, if even momentarily, for the kingdom and for the I king. I love it. And I so I'm, I'm sort of maybe prone in the other direction. And that's not to say that I, like, think of everything as this monumental accomplishment for the kingdom. But I, I think that I think of things more like that maybe than others do. And so I want to encourage yeah. people to maybe adopt that way of thinking. All right. And then that's the grand wonderful. cause. I don't, I don't want to miss yeah. the grand cause. Yeah, the grand cause. Okay, so that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose, that you're connected to something bigger than yourself. And of course, at the secular level, and you know my heart, Carmen, in all of this, I come I come to it as kind of a, a cultural apologist. I'm, I'm coming I'm coming in and looking at the way that the, the, the world's offerings contrast with the gospel offerings. And, you know, with the, the general approach to psychology, it would be, well, maybe join a political party or join a community organization or, you know, some sort of little group that'll help you to achieve something bigger than just your own, you know, your own dream. And that's all wonderful. All those things are important. Actually, Jesus says something absolutely profound. He says, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things, all of these little things, they can find their rightful place in a secondary sense. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is your grand cause. And of course, this is what he uh, emphasizes so strongly in the Lord's Prayer, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Some would say the Lord's Prayer is the summation of the Sermon on the Mount. In a, in a paragraph, it's the whole of his teaching in one. And what does he say there? Your fa- our Father, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he gives us a grand cause. And the grand cause is to take up um, our little part in the grand kingdom of God um, to see every day that it uh, is taking another step forward onto this earth, um, doing the little things like you were just talking about, picking up a piece of litter, reclaiming that little square inch of ground for uh, for Jesus. Well, that's what we're called to do. So these are profound, um, and yet they come with the backing of uh, the psychological movement who actually says, well, these are the things that we need to be able to be strong and weather the storms of life. Sheridan, um, as always, thank you so much. For those of you who uh, are 
thoroughly enjoying this. And by the way, our listeners are saying so. Be sure you tell Sheridan how appreciative we are. I mean, the, the, the comments just go on and on and on. So people are loving it. Thank you, Sheridan. You guys can go to SheridanVoicey.com. You're looking for the Resilient Series. Sheridan, S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N, Voicey, V as in Victor, O-Y-S-E-Y dot com, SheridanVoicey.com. Sheridan, as always, blessings upon you, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, and you too, Carmen. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. We'll be right back. All right, blessings on each and every one of you today as you're listening and as you're, yep, picking up trash. There you go. You know I love it. Every square inch, Jesus lays claim to all of it. And through us, he's reclaiming. He's reclaiming. He's redeeming, right? He's demonstrating the goodness of the grace of God in the midst of the living. And so let's be those people today. Let's be light. Let's be Let's be salt. Let's be you know, paper picker uppers, whatever it takes. Let's apply ourselves, the full force of our lives to goodness and godliness that others might see our good works and do what? Glorify God who is in heaven. All right, have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.